The Engineering Commons podcast explores challenges encountered by engineers, regardless of their field or industry. Join mechanical engineer Jeff, civil engineer Adam, and electrical engineers Brian and Carmen as they discuss issues of interest to today's engineering professional. This is episode 54, Brain on a Stick, May 1st, 2014. So, Adam, what's the value of a good engineer? Well, there's so many things that go into that. Experience, if they're really good at something, they might be worth quite a lot. I mean, you see, you see these engineers out in Silicon Valley commanding a pretty good salary. Yeah, it's a lot more than I, I get, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs> um, I, I do think some of those, those big salaries we see in the news are kind of uh, rare. Well, yeah, but you've only got to find one of those to make for a good news article. Well, yeah, yeah. Um, I can tell you what the, the cost of a cr- uh, traffic fatality is, though. Really? According to the Federal Highways, uh, a, a fatality in a traffic crash is $2.6 million. Hmm. Isn't it uh, kind of nice to know that if, if you uh, were driving to the store and got killed in a traffic crash, that that's what what you're worth? Huh. What does that uh, encompass? What, what kind of factors have they factored in there? Well, it's meant to be a uh, factor of how much what that cost to society is between lost productivity, cost of response and legal fees and, and just general drain on the economy. Hmm. And, and so that's sort of, you know, the bureaucracy's means of saying the life is gone, but it's worth this much money to society. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, we can't bring back the life, but this, this is a dollar value. Yep. Yeah. It kind of wraps it all up into a nice little bundle that you can do a calculation on. Yeah, well, that's that's sort of uh, dehumanizing, of course, to the person who's who's gone, and the family, and those who are who are sort of the the collateral damage there. Those who have to live their lives without this person who's gone. But that's sometimes the way society works in order to try to make determinations about what to do or what not to do. And uh, you know, I think we we sort of run into the same thing with engineers. That employers and organizations that hire engineers see engineers as being interchangeable cogs. You know, we all go through a similar schooling, through similar education. And therefore, if Adam and Jeff come out and have similar civil engineering degrees, it doesn't really matter what their backgrounds are so much. They they both met the same certification. So uh, we should be able to do the same job, right? It seems that way in, in many, many organizations. Well, so we thought we'd talk today about the fact that engineers are often perceived as being completely interchangeable, that they uh, they can be hired and fired, and there's not a whole lot of uh, gain or loss to, this, uh, to the organization. I think uh, in, in our early podcast, Chris and I talked about the fact that there's always some sort of loss of project knowledge when you get rid of an engineer, but we thought we'd, we'd focus on how engineers are perceived uh, by society and by organizations, and to do that, we've invited for this episode as our guest, uh, Kai Drung who is a biochemical engineer and an operations engineer. Uh, He's also a martial arts instructor and uh, what we might say an overall renaissance man uh, who happens to have an interest in engineering education. Uh, So, Kai, welcome to the Engineering Commons. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you, Adam. Glad to be here. Uh, Just one minor correct. First, really great pronunciation of my name. That was perfect. Oh, good. Oh, great. (laughs) And uh, minor correction, I'm an instructor in training, Oh, okay. Small, small difference. So okay. 
you'll, I'm sure you'll get there soon. Yeah. <laughs> and so where are you located, Kai? I'm in uh, Copenhagen, Denmark. Oh, wonderful. Well, we'll get soon enough how you got to uh, be in Copenhagen, but I thought we'd start with the, the question we ask a lot of our guests, and that is how, how did you get interested in engineering? Okay, so this is kind of a – I'm one of those people who got into engineering by complete accident because uh, I think when I was in high school, I had no idea what engineering is. I really had no idea what's the difference between engineering, science, applied science, and it all sounded similar to me. And when I was applying for university, I had uh, written a scholarship application to the University of Toronto, and uh, and the application was a kind of a creative art piece collection of writings, poetry, movie scripts, and whatnot that I've written about the relationship between technology and society. And uh, and what they do when they give you the scholarship at U of T is uh, they kind of try to match you up with someone, one of the scholars or professors at the university that have kind of similar background. So I got matched to a professor in uh, human factor engineering. And mm-hmm. uh, this is uh, Professor Kim Vincente, who actually has quite an impact on my thinking early on and even now that I think back. And mm-hmm. uh, Kim was basically saying, hey, you should go to this program called Engineering Science, and it's the best engineering program in, in uh, Toronto and possibly Canada, and you'll really, you'll really like it. And so I said, okay. Uh, I, I had a really good chat with him. He really seemed like he got me. Uh, he gets me, and, and so I was like, okay, let, let's go. So that's how I got into engineering. And uh, 12 years later, I'm still here. <laughs> yeah, well, that's not exactly the, the common... No you know, application to send movie scripts. Normally, you'd expect somebody just sending their, you know, their uh, their examination scores or their GPAs. Yeah. So uh, U of T has the University of Toronto has a national scholarship program, and it's a very different kind of scholarship program. This is their full scholarship, where they basically assume anybody who's over ninety percent grade. This is in Canada, where we're actually ranked on a percentile, percentile instead of A, B, C, D. Mm-hmm. So anybody right. who basically has an A, it, you can't judge them because uh, different schools are taught differently. And, uh, and, and so they ask you to first write a creative essay on any topic of interest, and then you create a creative project on any topic of interest if you get selected to the, the final stage. So, uh, so I was selected for the final stage, and, uh, and I knew I wanted something kind of STEM-related, because that's the field that I was going into, or I thought I wanted to go into, and, uh, mm-hmm. and I, didn't, I, I, I just thought it was kind of... I, I know people did like little science projects and stuff, and I thought, well, I don't think I know anything right? I, I don't think I have any tech, technical background, so let's do something that I can actually make a... that I have something worth to do or worth to, worthy to say, in a way, right? right. So, so it's, I wrote this kind of creative art piece, and, uh, and they liked it. Okay. <laughs> well, whatever works. Yeah. That's kind of an interesting way to get into engineering, the, the stereotypical engineer not being creative. Well, I think, th- I think the stereotypical engineer is creative, but just not in the Typical way. But not in the, the, or the, or, the artsy movie script way. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, see, I don't, I don't really know if that's the right 
way of saying it because it, that creativity really the something that's different. You know, yeah, in the artsy movie way, people don't apply creativity in that fashion engineering, but uh, it, that come from the same source, right? So, so in a way, well, okay, we'll get into that when we talk about engineering, engineering, because because uh, to me that's a big part of what's missing, right? So, so your uh, education at the University of Toronto, you started out in, uh, I believe, it was engineering science uh, mm-hmm. that had a biomedical option, mm-hmm. and then continued on and got your master's in chemical engineering and eventually a PhD in chemical engineering. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, as as I think the first biochemical engineer that we've had on the program, any thoughts about how biochemical engineering relates to other forms of engineering? Yeah, so it's actually a interesting field from a historical perspective because the field is very young compared to mm-hmm. most most en- engineering uh, disciplines. Uh, and uh, the I guess the bioengineering, the sub-discipline of engineering was created as sort of an interdisciplinary effort between across between biology and engineering and specifically uh electrical engineering and mathematical modeling type of uh type of stuff from the engineering side and biology growing out of the genomic effort mm-hmm. where you are trying to actually engineering life so that that's one side of the the bioengineering and uh, so bioengineering being the engineering of biology or life uh right. the biomedical engineer on the other hand uh, which i was initially trained in in undergrad was uh much more has more to do with instrument instrumentation and electrical engineering where you're building a lot of machines for uh for medical purposes and these would include stuff like mri if you think of or, or uh those one of the examples i remember really well is uh the those di- those little thing you wear as diabetes injectors those, those insulin yes. injectors yeah yes. those were uh, those were all the sort of all the rage when I was just getting into uh, biomedical option and that was like the the forefront of the uh, of the research at the time oh okay it started as an interdisciplinary effort and there has been a lot of debate back and forth regarding how interdisciplinary this subdiscipline is because the idea is that the bioengineer is supposed to be almost like a go-between person between biologists and enge- the community of biologists and the community of engineers. And, uh, and I think uh, today is more has evolved into its own discipline with its own language and its own kind of accreditation system and its own pedagogy. Uh, yeah. So, so it, it it's definitely quite different from a, a lot of other engineering disciplines. Uh, at UFT, there is no real. Well, a- after the biomedical option in uh, in engineering science, there is no master's or PhD in really bioengineering per se. So, I I, I was trained in the chemical engineering program. There's a there's a biomaterials and biomedical. Kind of an institute, but uh, but there it, it's slightly different than what I'm doing now. Uh, so you have a YouTube video about uh, transforming the engineering education, in which you talk about being bored and uninspired in <laughs> undergraduate. Yeah. Um, 
Would you mind elaborating a little bit? Do you think that uh, engineering schools are teaching just the wrong material or just being ineffective in the material that they are teaching? Okay, so can I, can I tell you the story of how this whole thing got started? Because I think it's a pretty interesting story. Go right ahead. Yeah, so, um, okay, like I said, uh, I started getting into engineering by having that very creative piece as a scholarship application, right? So, so off the bat, you know, I, I'm this, when I got into undergrad, I was kind of this really multifaceted guy who's interested in a lot of different things. Uh, in particular, I was really interested in philosophy and history along with, uh, with all the science STEM stuff. Right. And I kind of had a image of education in undergrad being like, you kind of go explore knowledge and meet lots of different people. And you really get to sort of pick and choose what you're interested in. And, uh, and that was right off the bat something I, I, I was highly disappointed in is that in engineering, when, when you go into engineering school, you get this very fixed, and this is, now I know is much more than just my school. At the time, I didn't know much. I thought it was more my program because of <laughs> this highly reputable engineering science being the best in Canada kind of thing. I thought, okay, maybe it's special, but no, it's not. It's engineering education in general is very rigid in uh, in what you can study. And, and mostly... In, you know, uh, my my colleague uh, uh, Dave Goldberg, who you've interviewed early in a few episodes ago, uh, yes, from Big Beacon, has this thing called the Math Science Death March, uh, yes, and that's okay. probably the most accurate uh, description. Of, it's a very succinct description of what the first few years of undergraduate ed- engineering education is. You know, you you are going into math, physics, and uh, and, and you're solving problem that's completely unrelated to any kind of real world uh, situation, and it's uninspiring in the sense that I think uh, it's just not meaningful to the students at all, right? It becomes a, it becomes learning material for the sake of taking tests, and taking tests for the sake of pretending we've learned the material, then we right. forget it, you know. Half a semester later, we really don't remember. And, and just to, I, I want to make this admission because uh, I just realized today when I was reading an article about engineering education that I never fully appreciated the third law of Newtonian physics. It, it's quite sad because uh, this, uh, I was reading an article about this, uh, this professor at Harvard doing, uh, Eric Mazur, actually, you guys gave me a link where he was, Talking, uh, talking about how assessment kills, uh, kills learning. In this mm-hmm. article, he was saying uh, they, they did a test on the understanding of third law of Newtonian physics by saying, well, do people know that when a big, heavy truck collide with a small car, the force exerted on both the car and the, uh, and the truck is exactly the same? And, uh, and it's like, you know from the math. Like if you're trained like a typical engineer, most likely what happens is you know the math says they're the same, right? From from basic physics, you know it should it should be the same, but you you never develop that gut instinct like no, like uh, your gut instinct says no, the heavier one is going to push the small one away, so the heavy one exerts more force on the small car. 
Right. And uh, and he found like a very very high number percentage of uh, students simply don't learn this concept. And, uh, and so so essentially, you you kind of you understand the book knowledge, but you get out, you don't really understand what this knowledge really means, right? I mean, right. the Newtonian third law never really came to play when I started doing grad school and now in my postdoc, I'm a bioengineer, so I don't deal with physics as much, but uh, it, it's quite sad when I realize I made that mistake myself. <laughs> yeah, there, there's another one that's similar to that where in, I think he's talking about the physics, there's a physics concept inventory they give to students to see if they really understand physics. And another one that he talked about was someone throwing a baseball from the outfield towards home plate and as it crosses second base what are the forces acting on the ball? Mm-hmm. And if you ignore air friction, mm-hmm. then the only the only force that's acting on that ball is gravity, which is straight downward. Mm-hmm. But if you ask people, uh, it sounded like from his description that a majority of people, even Harvard physics grads, would respond that there's some force that's propelling it forward. Uh, <laughs> that's funny, yeah. And and certainly there are there are parts of my education that that. Uh, I didn't really understand until many years after I'd gotten out of school. Yeah, I think so. That's uh, that's one of the thing that is. I really uh, I was deeply disappointed in with my education is that. Yeah, you're kind of in this bubble in a way, right? You're uh, this. I, I take take a joke from Big Bang Theory, which I kind of use as the guinea pig of uh, cultural perception of engineers and physicists. Right. And uh, and one of the joke is the you know the phys- when physicists talk about uh, trying what was it it was like getting trying to get chicken out of a pen, and the physicist says well we can have this spherical chicken assuming the chicken is spherical in a vacuum then I have a solution right. for you right and, yes. and that was very much the uh, the engineer education I've got is that these very isolated. Uh, at least in undergrad, is very isolated from any kind of real-world application. And uh, and any kind of application that was there is like, you know, 50, 60, 70 years out of date. And, and uh, example being thermodynamics, thermodynamics has been taught the same way for many, many years where steam engine is no longer important. Nobody cares about steam engines. And, uh, and all of the examples in thermodynamic in every textbook is about steam engines. I understand it was developed with steam engines, but that that's got to be updated at some point, right? Right, unless we return to steam engines because it's more ecological or something. <laughs> yes, unless we want to regress in that sense, right? <laughs> um, yeah, so right. that's that's one side. The other side that I was, I think. I think if your goal in engineering was to teach technical skills alone, then we can say that most engineering schools are doing it in a very ineffective manner, right? Uh, the, the, the knowledge retention and skill retention of the students are abysmal through after undergrad, where most of students... I've talked to, or I guess these would be graduated, people who have graduated would kind of use their uh, engineering school as a badge of honor and, mm-hmm. uh, and nothing more really. It, you know, you have, you have your, on, on your CV or resume, it says what courses you've taken and what discipline you are. Okay, that's it. And okay, you graduated from a decent engineering school. That means uh, you can, 
really do some stuff. Now you get to a workplace and it's time to learn the real stuff that you need for work. Right. That, mm-hmm. That's a pretty typical attitude I've seen, not just uh, not just people who graduated, but even in engineering school, students start to say this to each other that, uh, OK, everything you learn in school isn't really important because you you learn more stuff when you learn the real stuff in the, the job place. Right. That in the workplace. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and to me, that's kind of a waste of time, even if the whole point of engineering education is all the technical stuff. But I think uh, I think. That's selling education short to say that all we want to do is teach technical stuff, because I think there's a lot of uh, a lot of really important pieces of education that's completely missing. You know, um, one of the other things that made me so bored and uninspired is that I felt like so trapped in the particular discipline that I have chosen, the subdiscipline of engineering, and mm-hmm. uh, and just have very little freedom of, of exploring what else is out there. And on top of that, uh, I think of for most of undergraduate education and part of my graduate education, ingenuity was basically punished, right? If you look at the system that we've developed, it's, it's a lot of memorization. It's a lot of trying to solve a set of problems to get the one right answer. And this is quite different from uh, what you would experience in real life in an actual engineering setting where you don't really have the solution and, and there's many ways to get that solution. Right. So, so right. This, this ingenuity, which uh, if the word engineer comes from the word ingenuity. Right. It, it, it's right. intrinsically we're supposed to be people with this capacity for ingenuity. And uh, and that that's that's uh, that's suffocated during undergrad. And, and to me, that's one of the biggest downfall or crime of the existing educational system. And that, that goes beyond engineering, but I, I think it's very obvious in engineering. Okay, so if I if I take the uh, I play devil's advocate, mm-hmm. you know, if if I'm a English major, I may have to you know take a class in poetry, even though I'm I'm going to you know my intent is to go write novels, or I may mm-hmm. have to mm-hmm. uh, study you know music appreciation or or something. And I I don't think anybody would claim that delving into these other areas are unimportant just because I want to be a novelist and not a a poet. Mm-hmm. And so there's a certain value, I think, to engineers to say, I've got a good schooling in the, the fundamental of mathematics, in, of, of this abstraction that's useful to engineers, and that we all have to go through it. And therefore, I can talk to you as a, as a biochemical engineer, and I can talk mm-hmm. to Adam as a civil engineer, even though I'm a mechanical engineer, and I can say something about integration. Calculus. And so we, yeah, we can talk about, we can talk about aspects of, of this abstraction and and speak clearly to one another because we we all have the same you know basic uh, schooling in this area. So is is that not valuable? You know that's the interesting thing. Okay, so there's two things that's there, right? First is that the need for a common language, and uh, and I don't know how much experience you have in talking with uh, with other kind of engineers, but uh, I being in a very weirdly interdisciplinary field of bioengineering, I sort of have to, had to talk to quite a bit of different uh, 
discipline instead of in, including some sub disciplines of engineering and uh, computer science, which is similar to engineering, civil engineers who deals with bio stuff. Sometimes I had to deal with physicists, mathematicians, uh, uh, and biologists, obviously, and chemists, and uh, right. and that language, that that common language platform, and this is all very science technology type of uh, disciplines. We're not talking about somewhere like linguistic or or literature, right? Mm -hmm. right. That common language is not there. It, uh, beyond the what's considered the fundamental of basically math and calculus and some chemistry, everything else is completely not interchangeable. And uh, to down to some very basic terminologies, uh, one of the things that, that confused me for a year, I, 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 okay, so I study and the engineering of microorganisms, and uh, specifically uh, my, my PhD was on the mathematical modeling of uh, microorganisms, in where we uh, kind of use these kind of linear programming, so let's say linear algebra models of, uh, of the metabolism of the organisms in order to predict their behavior in if you're growing them or if you're trying to use them to create either chemicals or drugs or fuel, right? right. And, uh, and one of the terms they come up with is flux, which is a term in, in physics, a flux is something going through a, an area. Right, that, that's that's sort of the the basic definition of flux, but uh, right. but they've completely changed that in bioengineering, so that now is uh, as something going, it, it's it's more akin to velocity of flow, instead of uh, a flux through a area. That area concept has been t taken out. So there, so hmm. this this idea that we're all trained to have these common language thing, I think beyond calculus, beyond some basic physics and chemistry, it's not there. And, and further, furthermore, I kind of, as an educator, I'm not so certain that those, the fundamentals as, uh, as we generally think of are really that fundamental. Like what makes calculus or integration, for example, so much more important than something else, and and, and I, I you know I, I think for engineers a lot of engineers that this is almost a, a built-in thing that you need to learn to integrate, and and I think a lot of engineers would then honestly say I've never integrated beyond second year. Yeah, I've I've said many times that I spent twenty years in industry without having to do an integral. Yeah. So, uh, but but I do but I do think it's it's valuable to have that idea. I mean, there are, there are key thoughts of, you know, if you've got a a non homogeneous material, mm -hmm. the fact that you can integrate to find the sing, uh, the center of mass, or you can you know you've got a, a non steady flow rate and you can integrate to find the you know the total volume that's passed through mm -hmm. um, through an area. So so having the concept of integration, even if I had had lost the specific skill of working at a particular integral was still valuable to me. I think calculus is probably necessary to be taught during undergrad. Uh, what I'm saying is that is that a foundational thing in the way that what, when you call fundamentals, it's you have to teach it first. What I'm saying is that is that something you have to teach first, right? Or is that something that naturally arises that as you're dealing, say, for example, I give a student a 
interesting project that somehow he or she have to actually use some integration. Now there's actually an incentive to learn integration instead of learning integration for the sake of learning integration. Because I don't think most students would appreciate how important it is without actually being in a situation where he or she has to actually use it. Does that make sense? It makes absolute sense. I just know that it takes time to develop this sense of place and purpose. And, you know, as it is, the the engineering curriculum is being jammed. You know, they're working trying to jam it into four years, yeah. even though yeah. most students take five years to get it. And there's no time to do, yeah. you know, for instance, I think more emphasis should be put on statistics, more emphasis should be put on software development, mm-hmm. more emphasis on empathy for others, more emphasis. Uh, more emphasis on design, but there's no time for this. So they're trying to jam all this stuff in there. And so the, the idea that not only do I have to take, teach, you know, integration by parts, I've got to set, I've got to motivate that. Well, now that's half a lecture I've spent just motivating it, giving the history and professors that are already struggling, trying to get everything crammed in there mm-hmm. going, I don't have time for this. Let's just, let's get straight to the meat of the subject and let's start in with integration by parts. Okay. So you know what? Let me, uh, we were talking about what I didn't like about my undergraduate, right? right. And one of the things I haven't mentioned is that I think uh, the human factor is completely taken out of engineering education, right? These okay, being right. any kind of uh, social interaction skills, any kind of real meaningful teamwork, uh, leadership skills, any kind of, uh, let's say, Self-understanding is just not there. You're not, you don't mature as a person uh, as you go through engineering. And, and one of the things, I, I, was, uh, I was at this job interview, and, uh, and I was presenting a new view of engineering education. And, uh, and the, my thesis of when I was giving this talk is that engineering education needs to go back to being about people because technology is about people that technology is supposed to serve people somehow, and, uh, and engineers are people first. And uh, if, if we're going to teach engineers, then we have to teach them as people before we kind of add on all the technical skills. So, so there is, I, I think there are a lot of things that's missing is sort of like this sense of purpose and meaning in life that, that you don't get. So, so, you know, people, people kind of like the thesis and, they were asking, okay, how would you do this if you're, you're presented with a group of first-year students who's really not mature and not enough to really appreciate how important this stuff is, right? right. And, and on top of that, as you say, we have this boatload of what is perceived as fundamentals that needs to be taught, right? Where do you get the time of day to do this? And, right. uh, and this is a two-day interview, so the first day, I didn't know how to answer this question. And the, the, okay. I, I went home, and I was sleeping, and, and I really, I was just, just kind of marinating in my dream. And second morning, I had an answer. And I was saying, you know, you remember the last time that you watched a movie or read a book? And then afterward, and, and you say, my life changed because of this movie or this book, right? Mm-hmm. And I was thinking, you know, this should be the end state of a good engineer education. I want my student to get out of this course completely changed as a person alongside with all the skill that he or she picked up. So how do I do this? And I, I come with, I, I think 
I think we have to go to the power of the story because uh, human beings like stories. Yes, they do. And, and that, that's, one of the, well, that's one of the powerful things that's not very applicable in a lecture form. You can't create a story. It's very difficult to create a story where the student feel a part of, right? When, when you're just giving a lecture and they're just taking notes. But, but instead, what if, what if engineering education is framed as a experience where it's almost, think of like a murder mystery dinner or a, an RPG game, like a role playing game, if you may, right? Mm-hmm. Where the student really take part in some evolving story. And because of this, you know, the student have to have some objective. You, you, so, so, you know, like uh, the educator is almost a script maker in a way that, that, ha- that have a little bit of guidance on where the students have to take, uh, where their routes have to be. But they have to find their own path to these kind of uh, flagship, flag points in a way, right? They, they have to get through po- certain points to get to the final objective. And that's the end of the story as the story unfolds. But... Uh, but they get to kind of pick their own story. They get to live out the experience, right? So, so, so to me, that's a powerful way of making, uh, making the educational experience meaningful. That's a powerful way of making students really, really engaged in everything they learn. And by the way, if you improve engagement, your retention goes up, your attention goes up, and your capacity for absorbing information goes up. And, and suddenly, all the uh, tons and tons of fundamental now takes less time to teach, just simply by being engaged. And, and, and lastly, lastly, it's a excellent sort of examination of how much of that fundamental stuff is really fundamental enough to include in this four years education. I mean, what you're describing is sort of what I think about is, uh, at least for young students, uh, the Montessori education, where they're allowed to sort of you know, they're given freedom to explore where they, what they find interesting. We've looked at, me and my wife have been looking a little bit in Montessori education because uh, my wife was working in a, in a preschool in Denmark, sort of a daycare slash preschool kind of place. And, and right. we have a kit coming up. So we've been looking at what kind of early childhood education and, and uh, sort of a K-12 system. Right. And I think one of the thing about Montessori is really good at giving freedom and creativity. I think Montessori is a little lack on structure, a little lack on having uh, having intent and agency where uh, there's a lot of uh, exploration. But uh, but I I like to see a bit more purpose. And uh, and to that end, uh, I've, I've seen some pretty good Montessori places. Uh, I've seen a really bad one here in Denmark, but that that may or may not be a representative Montessori school. I can say this one is not very good. Well, they, you know, there's always the factor of the people involved in, yes, in the situation exactly. involved. Yeah, yeah. But this does sort of roll back to you're talking about what has to be in, involved in the engineering education. Yeah. We, we talked with Dave Goldberg a bit about uh, the Grinter report, which came out post World War II, that was mm-hmm. basically saying engineering should be less you know, hands-on, you know, let's going, yeah. let's going into the machine shop and working with tools and more, yeah. more calculus, more, you know, abstract science. And that's, that's what we've gotten. I mean, that's, that has been, been delivered on. Yeah. And that, that's deliberately done. 
right? Because because of that report and the kind of the idea that science won the war, so let's create more scientists and engineers in that way. Right, but but it does deliver what it does deliver what Adam and I talked about at the beginning of this podcast, which was you get interchangeable engineers. You force exactly. them, you force them all through this mm-hmm. same through this same you know. I'm thinking of the old Play-Doh toy where you'd put the Play-Doh in and you'd squeeze the thing and, and it would extrude, you know, perfect shape. Yeah. You know, we, yeah. we're all extruded yeah. through the same orifice and therefore we all end up approximately the same. And so employers go, yeah. hey, he has a degree. It says, you know, engineering, he must be worth hiring. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, and I think that's uh, – this is a – it's kind of a cultural problem. Well, it is a cultural problem. It, it's not just – the engineer education that's doing this engineer education is serving a larger machine that kind of treat people like these cogging machines. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and, and to me, this, well, first of all, I think most of us can agree is it makes us a little uncomfortable as human beings to be treated like machines. Sure. And, and I think that discomfort is a natural thing because we're not meant to be machines. And, uh, and I think that's, that's really, one of the de- the overall dehumanizing thing about the way our society is running away, right? And this this goes beyond engineering education. This is done in almost every educational system. Is that you're supposed to fit into a resume or a CV, right? And and, and the uh, the very human part of you is not taken into consideration. And and I don't think that. Well, okay, look at where it's gotten us, right? You know, like uh, if if you you were to believe the the extremely technological optimists, we should be much farther away, farther along. You know, we shouldn't have all these problems that we're experiencing today. And I think a lot of problem that we experience today, sustainability issue, you know, water shortage, food shortage, inequality, uh, wealth disparity, stuff like this. They're complex, complex problems, and we don't have the tools to solve them. And more, more importantly, we don't have the people to solve them. Like these complex problems cannot be solved by these kind of cogs in the machine because cogs in the machine is very good at solving predefined and well-defined problems. It's just I think the creative problems of today and tomorrow are not predefined and not well-defined. We're in such messy and murky water, right? And because of that, we need a new type of engineer in order to, uh, to actually face the problem we're facing today and face the problem we're facing tomorrow. Do you think it's just a matter of we've, we've picked off the low-hanging fruit? I mean, there was, a, there was a long period where engineering could just approach everything in a, a technical manner, and we mm-hmm. would, we would advance society in that means, and we've gotten to the point where all the you know all the low hanging fruit has been picked off, and now we have to start dealing with you know human perceptions and human foibles and human uh, tendencies mm-hmm. that are are not nearly as predictable and as well defined as things like Young's modulus. Mm-hmm. I think you you can't you can in a way say that it was the low-hanging fruits that's been picked clean. But I think we've got stuck in, if you say it that way, then we've got stuck in the low-hanging fruit mindset, right? We've learned to solve the low-hanging fruits very well. And uh, 
so well that we can't even see the high hanging fruits. You know, one of the things that's uh, go back to engineering education a little bit, that's almost never taught, like people talk a lot and a lot about problem solving engineering. Mm-hmm. And especially when you teach engineering and uh, you say, okay, what makes engineers so different than anybody else? Oh, they got problem solving skills. But one of the things that's never taught is problem formulation. And to me, that that's that's the that's the first battle you have to kind of fight, right? That, that that's that's the beginning of the the story. And uh, and if you never learn how to formulate problems, you're just going to solve a bunch of problems that's either formed by, by someone else or you kind of jumble them together. And it's that that's 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 something really missing there. So, give me an example of what's you know how how do you, would you define good problem formulation versus bad problem formulation? For me, anyways, to, especially looking at the problems we have today, to formulate the problem well, you have to actually appreciate the complexity of how, say, this piece of technology that you're developing fits into the larger web of technology, economy, and society, mm-hmm. and, and ecosystem, right? And, uh, and that, that, that's one part. You need to examine the, the assumptions, and, and this comes with... Uh, and your your belief system, and this comes with a self understanding that most engineers are simply lacking, right? You have to you have to cut, sort of see your own myopic beliefs, and and all of them, all of us have them. You know, I have a term I, I call them uh, I, this kind of disciplining my myopicism. Is that the right word? Sure. Yeah. Short sightedness. Yeah. <laughs> this kind of disciplinary short sightedness. It's it's kind of a, if you imagine like this inside the box thinking in a way, you know, like we've all been kind of put into boxes and smaller boxes as we learn more and more within the discipline. And this is supported by sort of a disciplinary ego in a way in that, okay, my discipline can resolve everything within, you know, like I'm an engineer, then I can solve all the world's problem because, you know, I, I'm meant to be a problem solver. Right. But you can't because you don't have all the data, you don't have all the information, you don't have an understanding of the full, the full picture. And none of us can, right? That, that, that's where you have to actually work together, but you're not prepared to work together. By large, most engineering students today come out of school completely unprepared to solve the real problem of the world. And, and then we're surprised that we have so many difficult problems to solve. I understand what you're saying that through the engineering education system, we focus on the problems that have been defined in the textbooks and that our mm-hmm. solutions can solve that. So how do we go about opening that up? How do we change the engineering education system or what, what's missing there to, to get that, that bigger picture? How do you, how do we institutionalize that? Okay. So, the last word, is, the last part about how to institutionalize that—that's difficult for me. I, I can tell the first part. The first part I'll tell you. The second part I'll make a prediction. How's that? Well, how do you propose we, we institutionalize it? I, I, I think uh, I think a couple things has to. Well, a lot of things has to change. But uh, first is engineering education has to become more meaningful to the students. And, uh, and, and in part, that's to get the students more engaged. In part, that also improves the engagement of the educator in a way. And, 
meaningful in the way that students have to learn real world problems. They have to actually be in a, you know, it's a simulation of the real world, but we want to be as close to the real world as possible. If that makes sense. Okay. Like some students get the benefit of going through a co-op or an internship, which exposes mm-hmm. them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as soon as you said exposure to world, real world problems, I'm thinking, well, if you're a, if you're a medical student, you go to your school and get through your schooling, and then you go do a residency, so you're exposed to those problems. Mm-hmm. Whereas in engineering, mm-hmm. we we give you the degree, and then we send you out and say, okay, you're qualified. Yeah. So so that's definitely one part is uh, to actually have real world experience, and co-op is a actually a great way of doing this. Uh, uh, what I'm saying is that why can't all the classes that you're taking be more real world? You know, why can't you, instead of design a steam engine, actually design a part, you know, for your local post office? That that make a bit of more realistic case, right? And uh, And I was visiting this school where they had a course, and I was really... Uh, really inspired by this one course where the first year uh, design course, this, this, the design course, they were supposed to take a uh, biomimetic uh, bio approach mm-hmm. to, to design, and they're supposed to design a toy for a fourth grader. And, uh, and okay, so this is a pretty realistic problem, and, and it actually fits design very well. And uh, in the end, they actually get fourth graders to come in and grade the students. And the, so fourth grader gets in, they play with the toys, they, they, really, they really have a blast, and they, they say how, how good this toy is, right? And, and I think, uh, you know, that's, that gives a very large psychological motivation and, and reward in a way when you actually create something for real. And I, th- I think that's, that's one of the part that kills the passion is that you spend so, four years, you know, like, okay, let's say you spent three years going through solving problems about steam engines, and then, then you go else and do a year of co-op by the third year most students are really bored out of their mind and they don't have the passion for engineering anymore you know and and maybe maybe if they're lucky they get a good co-op and they get some of the that passion back but why was the passion kind of suffocated out in the first three years to begin with we talked a little bit about that earlier i i had sent you a video of uh, uh, harvard physics professor eric mazur talking yeah. on the subject of uh, assessment and how it has killed learning. Yeah. And that sort of comes – we've talked about this previously on the podcast a time or two about how it's really difficult if you're going to be doing uh, assessment and you're going to be doing accreditation mm-hmm. to have a free-flowing learning experience because it becomes very difficult. It's, it's like grading – everything you're grading is an essay question as opposed to you yeah. know a, a, yeah. a, a fill-in-the-blank. Oh, and, and so now – Every student with every problem, you're having to sit there and evaluate. Well, did they really understand this? And and they didn't cover, you know, they learned integration by parts, but they completely skipped differentiation because the problem they were involved in didn't have differentiation. So uh-huh. how do I grade that against the student who did both integration and differentiation but didn't have as broad an industrial experience? It's really difficult. Okay. So, so here is actually where this is actually goes very well with why I think the question of how do we restructure institution makes me, that's a hard question for me to answer, is that 
I think the accreditation system and the assessment system and the accreditation system is perfectly fitted with the copying a machine mode of student production, right? So if you want to produce students that are interchangeable parts, then you have to have assessment system the same way that we have to have quality control when we produce Coxie machines. Right. Right. And that, that's what the assessment system and the accreditation for programs are supposed to do. It is to make sure that when I make an engineer that's a chemical engineer, he or she has these, these different, different blocks of things. Right. Now, do we need that? Do we need that? Because is at some point in the past, maybe we actually needed it when knowledge has a very high premium, when you can only learn knowledge through, from your professor who are experts in the field and, uh, and who can give you kind of these kind of uh, specialized knowledge and, uh, and you can't get it anywhere else, or else you have to go through tombs and tombs of books, textbook, and try to find them, mm-hmm. right? Right. And that's changing. That's changing because of how much of these education are going online, right? And, and almost, uh, I, I'm, I, I really think these massive online courses, these MOOC, the, this is kind of a new trendy in education, right. is really going to shuffle the institutional system. And if you look at, look at the way, so, so what these uh, online courses are doing is that usually it's people who are really passionate about teaching whatever technical specialty they are. They're, they're the expert of their, their field. And they, they put their lectures or they put their teachings online, right? And they're exploring different ways of, of constructing these kind of online experiences. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and there's a lot to be done, uh, you know, like uh, just putting your le- dry lectures online, it's about the same effectiveness as doing a dry lecture in lecture hall but but giving the freedom of the web now we have a lot more possibility of how to interact between students to students and between students to to teachers right and, and that frees up a lot of man hour for one that that now if you if every institution were to embrace this i, I know a lot of institutions are really resistant to this Right? But if everybody is to embrace this, then now suddenly, instead of having a calculus professor, actually in you know, a big university like, like U of T, you'd get eight or ten calculus, first-year calculus teachers. Instead of having that per university, now we have just three or four for the entire world. How much man-hour is saved? And, and look, at, uh, look at the way most schools hire their, their, their professors is high. You know, a big research school hire them based on their research, and they really don't care about how well this professor teach as long as they're bringing in the funding, right? And, and that, that's partly because of a money issue, uh, largely because of money issue, really. And, and now, if, if we actually embrace this online uh, te- learning opportunity, then we can really take all the technical stuff online and, and, that, and, and have re- people who are good teachers who are passionate about studying different pedagogy, developing, really developing these uh, schools on, in the cloud in a way, right? In that sense, now there's less of a premium on knowledge. So what do, we, what do educational institutions do when the premium of knowledge drop like that? 
So I, I think I think that's that's where the future of inst- educational institutions start to get a little murky, start to get a little uncertain. I hear what you're saying, Kai, but I I do think that for for a good portion of students. So if you have a driven student who wants to learn mm-hmm. and can study from the best calculus mm-hmm. instructor in the world, then that's great. But I think for a lot of students, they need some handholding. And so it's, it's, yes. it's, it's not as much the fact they have access to the world's best calculus Perfect. instructor as they've got somebody around close by. I think it's important that they have a, a cadre of people that they can share the misery with, that they can say, yes, I, yes. we're going through the same struggles. I mean, this idea of the math, Absolutely. this math science death march is true, but you feel a sense of camaraderie with the other people you've gone through it with. And you, you need some instructor who's going to hold your hand and t- when you get stuck mm-hmm. and say, it's okay, we can solve this, don't, don't give up. And it's as much psychiatrist and parent and, exactly. and booster as it is instructor. So now you've, you've come to, one, I, I think uh, Dave really liked this reframe, Dave Goldberg liked this reframe, the going from teachers being from experts to coaches. Mm-hmm. Right, and I, I think that that's one of the fundamental shift in the uh, in the institution is that well, before institutions were developed to be kind of a source of knowledge, right? So what I'm saying is now the source of knowledge is outsourced. Okay, but we have we have people in house. So what's to to me, we it's I'm I'm really not saying that we should get rid of institution. I'm saying institution needs to be transformed in the way that the teachers are going from essentially the experts who has the knowledge now to coaches who guide the students in obtaining the knowledge that's meaningful to them, that's uni- that's useful to them. And, and also to acquire all the additional skills, all, all the additional skills, the mindset, the, uh, the belief system, uh, understanding of self, you know, a uh, sufficient amount of teamwork, interaction, social skills, leadership skills. All of this is what the coach, as you say, it's, a, uh, it's almost a job, part psychologist. And, and to me, I, I like to, instead of saying coach, I like to say that the teacher serves as guides in a way. Right, we're, we're we're guiding the students along this path of learning, where they're really engaging. We're motivating them, having them engaged in self-learning, but we're guiding them, and they're never alone. They're never really alone. They're never really kind of by themselves, truly by themselves. Right. So, so I, I think this is a kind of a different, very different vision, a very different model of the future of education. So how did you get to know Dave Goldberg? Uh, it's a slightly complicated story where uh, essentially I made the video about engineer education. Right. I caught the attention of a filmmaker from Toronto um, wow. who was actually doing a piece on engineer education. So he, he saw my video, then uh, a week later he flew down to Copenhagen to meet me actually to do a film session and I spent a two amazing dates with him and uh, and then he was ju- I was just telling him about my experience how I see engineering education's both downfall and how it can evolve to be better 
for the future. And then he mentioned, well, there's a few places that uh, that are actually looking into this. Mm-hmm. And uh, so one of the places is uh, York University in Toronto, who's actually funding him to do the film. And then another place he mentioned was Olin College in Boston. And, uh, and both places are essentially exploring uh, new ways of uh, essentially transforming engineering education. And the third uh, he mentioned is uh, Dave Goldberg, who's uh, affiliated with Olin a little bit, but he's mainly uh, the organizer behind this little organization called Big Beacon. And uh, and, and that's kind of how I got in touch with uh, Dave Goldberg. I, I mentioned Ryan Varga's name. That's the filmmaker. Right. And, uh, and so uh, and uh, Dave was very, uh, he saw my video and he was, kind of touched by it actually so we had a great uh, skype call and i became a volunteer for big beacon oh terrific yeah and uh, and big beacon is a it's an interesting organization because the idea is to create a movement to transform engineer education and uh, right now it's really just uh four or five of us uh working at it on a volunteering basis but what I, how I see it is sort of this, it, it's, a, it's a hub or a, a, a connector that sort of pulls in people and organizations of a sim- similar mind. Right. And, uh, and hope in kind of in hope to both generate a, uh, a movement and also to create this kind of connectivity. And and for me, uh, when I first heard of Big Beacon and and also York and Olin, one of the thing was uh, I kind of felt this weight drop off my shoulder. That's like, wow, there's other people that's working on this too. I don't feel so alone. Right. So so for me, that that's that's a big thing for me. That's uh, that's one of the reasons I really wanted to get into this. And uh, and also uh, just to mention that. Uh, the engineering commons is now actually a media affiliate. I don't know if you want to just mention a couple words on that, a media affiliate of Big Beacon. Yeah, so we uh, had Dave Goldberg on as a guest several episodes ago and uh, had some conversation about his Big Beacon organization. And I don't know whether, you know, there's a number of organizations out there trying to change engineering education. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, there's a big emphasis on STEM these days. And so I don't know exactly what what the right way to go is or what the right reforms are. Uh, yeah. But I will say this: I I respect Dave, and he was a uh, he was an educator, had a tenure position at at University of Illinois, very well respected. And he decided that he could make changes going out on his own, and he left that and uh, headed out on his own, and is trying his best to pull together these uh, these uh, sort of disparate eff- efforts at reform. And to push them uh-huh. in the right direction, and to push them in the direction of uh, empowering the engineer and giving the engineer the right tools to be effective in society. And so, while I don't know whether uh, Dave is got all the answers, I respect the direction he's going. <laughs> and uh, he and I had some conversation and said uh, we are going to remain separate organizations. Uh, the Engineering Commons is not a mouthpiece for the Big Beacon, nor is the uh, uh, the Big Beacon a representative of necessarily the opinion of this podcast, but we appreciate what one another is doing. And uh, so we'll be supportive in that effort. And so listeners to the podcast may have noticed that three or four episodes ago, the, uh, the closing of this uh, podcast had some, 
some dialogue about us being affiliated with the Big Beacon, and that's the reason. Cool. All right. So, well, you you have a phrase for the way that the world sort of perceives engineers. Yeah. What's that? <laughs> no, it, it I call them a uh, brain on a stick. Brain on a <laughs> stick. Okay. Yeah. So so this phrase come from a uh, a PhD comics. And, uh, and, and this is, if you haven't heard about PhD comics, it's a, it, it's actually an engineer who also happened to be a graphic illustrator. And, uh, and he has this very successful website about graduate school. And, uh, and this particular comic is very applicable for engineers as well. It's on the left. It says it's a, it's a graduate student. So in this case, it's an engineering student. And, uh, she has these, uh, kind of, all sorts of different interests, aspirations, you know, goals for life. And, uh, you know, he, he, she has her own life story. And on the right is how her professor perceives her is just a brain on a stick. And, <laughs> and, and that's kind of representative of how a lot of, you know, it, it's pretty common when you talk about our cultural perception of engineers, right? We, we kind of see this very nerdy guy who's kind of, uh, socially awkward not really know what's going on outside their their their, their technical specialty but really really good at their technical specialty really really good at math you know and uh, and and in the workplace you kind of think of dilbert who's kind of a real drone and and don't do much it's you know the engineers being the cogs in the machine and this is kind of the cultural view of engineers Right. And I think that's kind of a broken cultural view of engineers. It really um, it dehumanizes us. It, it, it minimizes that our value below that uh, two point six million to me. <laughs> <laughs> right. I'm, I'm trying to look up, look up the actual comics right now to see if I made any mistake no i'm I'm pretty much uh right now oh yeah it says the comic actually says uh you know this girl is a complex human being with hopes dreams and aspirations <laughs> and uh the professor just sees her as a brain on a stick yeah this phd comic is about grad school and uh i think uh in north america in particular has a very uh grad school also has its own serious problems where a lot of stu- grad students are kind of used as cheap labor for years and years and years. Yeah. Very different in Denmark. I'm only saying this because uh, I wish had, after I'm doing my postdoc in Denmark, and uh, I, I, when I came here, I just wished I did my PhD here. Oh. Because <laughs> students are tra- treated so much differently. You know, you're, you're kind of paid like a real person. Right. It, it, it's, a re- it's viewed as a real job. You get vacation time. You have a set time for how long your PhD is supposed to be. Most of your, a lot of Danish PhDs are actually uh, uh, industrially funded, so you work on a real project instead of something that's very much, uh, you know, your professor's interested in. Instead of that, you're doing things you're interested in. It's just, it's just a different mentality. Yeah. With your experience there in Denmark, do you think they do a better job of allowing the students to? experience real more more complex problems more real world problems i'm not fully capable of saying because i didn't go through the danish system and i can tell you that the danish engineers the answer is no from what I, who i've told 
talk to. Mm-hmm. No, they don't do a better job here. They pay them better. Okay. But they don't do a better <laughs> job of having them doing real world problems. They don't do a better job of motivating their students. Uh, they play a little bit. They pay a little bit, bit more attention on teaching, just the way uh, because I I kind of know how they do their uh, professor hiring system here. So so you have to do some training as a teacher, so you're not kind of like you you actually get training as teachers as professors, whereas right. in most uh, North American school you don't necessarily get that kind of training. They get they they get pretty extensive training here actually. Like you, you need to take a year worth of courses before you're kind of like a fully full professor, but um, but by and large the same problem is occurring here as well. I have a I have a friend who uh, uh, you mentioned that I made a video about this. I I I know we got sidetracked earlier. I was going to tell the story of a, of the video okay. of how it kind of sure. came out because uh, I never I I didn't like my education. Right, I had a lot of problem about it. I really kept it to myself for about twelve years because I thought I was really—it was just me that thought that way. Like, like because I—I I think I, I said that because everybody else seemed to be kind of okay going along. They get jobs or they go to grad school, you know, and they—they they look kind of happy. And uh, <laughs> and then what happened was I was complaining about it. And I never really complain about this. I'm I'm not a complainer as a person. I don't complain about things. Right. <laughs> but but this one time I was talking to a uh, the this is uh, Robin Sachs from the leadership program at uh, University of Toronto, and I was on Skype and we we're just talking about education. And, and I was saying like, oh man, if you want to talk about a bad undergraduate education experience, and I started listing all these things that that I, I was talking about today, right? And and Robin was saying, wow, you really need to tell people about this. You really need to make like a video or a presentation or something and and kind of, kind of, you know, because I think people need to know it's kind of, education almost broke you in a way. And I was thinking, huh, maybe. And, and when I made the video, I was thinking, you know, I thought I thought I was kind of a minority of students who had lots of interest because, as you say, I'm kind of a Renaissance man. I'm kind of really into art and re- into martial arts, into uh, into body mind stuff. You know, I thought I thought thought I was kind of a weird duck in <laughs> should have been an engineer kind of thing. But I thought, you know, there's potential in these weird ducks. So you know, why don't we let all of their potential out? So maybe there's need for like a special program for people like this or something that was actually my initial thoughts when mm-hmm. i made the video and, and it just i got such overwhelming number of students that just says yes to my video okay <laughs> they don't say anything else they just say yes that's my experience too and these are students who's in school these are students who's out of school you know and um and they're from all over the world now talk to brazilian students Canadian, American, Danish, uh, British, uh, Swedish, you know, uh, and, and it, it's, it's very similar across the board. It, 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 it's not a nationality thing. It's, a, it's not a, no country is doing it better. It's just how engineering education became formed, right? right. And, uh, and, and then I kind of had this sense, like, it's why I wanted to go into education, for for one is I I just don't want like I realize other people are suffering the same way I was suffering, and I thought okay we have to we have to figure out a better way to do this, right? 
And even even if you say, and, and, and I don't I don't believe that a lot, the death the uh, the math science death march is necessary. I, I think we could do a lot better there. But even if you say it's necessary, we, there's still room to improve. Much room to improve. There's no necessity for that four years of suffering, so you can come out with a badge of honor in a way, right? So, so, so that's, that's how I got into making this video and how I got into engineering education and, uh, and kind of where, where my, my own personal passion comes from. And, and I, I think, uh, from a change management perspective, change has to come from within, like people have to change before you, you can't just force a different system. There's a lot of, there, there are Initiative, you know, I I, talk, I like to talk about the need that we need multidisciplinary, transdisciplinary experiences, education, and 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 collaboration. Because mm-hmm. because when you look at these kind of very complex problem in the world, you can't have um, it. It doesn't work for just one discipline. But if you uh, if you look at some of the uh, experimental programs out there, a lot of them are failing. A lot of them have problems because uh, the, the educators don't agree with each other. They don't share the perspectives. You, can, you can't just put people together and, and say, okay, we're going to have you guys collaborate without them actually sharing kind of a common uh, vision or common lens in a way or even common language. Mm-hmm. Right, and, and these these experiments tends to fail because of that, and it, it it's tough. And to me, one of the thing is that, well, to really change this, you got to start from the students. The students have to change. The and like to me, it's a, it's a two generation change. It's not it's not going to happen in one day, but uh, but there it's almost like the stars aligned a little bit that change is going to happen. Change is going to happen soon, just because there's so much pressure both technologically with the online stuff really it's going to press the transformation of the institutional system then also from the uh, societal demand perspective people are demanding different kind of technology people are demanding different more social responsibility more understanding of the uh, ecosystem you know like people are demanding different kind of engineers to do this kind of work I think you're right, and it's going to take time, but it's also going to be a difficult problem because humans mm-hmm. humans still have failings, and, and and because of that, you you end up with you know we're we're swayed by charismatic figures and, and things that aren't always rational uh, mm-hmm. at the time. Seem you know we get caught up in the emotion of the moment, and yeah, I, I had just uh, you were talking about the need for engineers to handle complex problems, and mm-hmm. I, was, I was just reading through uh, uh, there's a uh, a blogger named uh, Dave Weiner, who's a software developer. He's had a, a site called Scripting News that is I, is probably one of the longest running blogs on the on the internet. Uh, but he he's a software development. He's been involved in internet you know related stuff uh-huh. for a while. And he was talking about the the recent Heartbleed problem where there was a, a bug found yep. in the Open SSL code. Yeah, yeah. And and so this is something that you know lots of people have had the chance to look at. It's open source. Lots of you know whatever they said. They said like sixty six percent of the uh, sites on the internet use Open SSL. Although it turns out that I think only seventeen percent were actually using the versions that had this problem. Uh, yeah. But nonetheless, he he had a little quote here. He said, 
about complexity, I, I'm looking at this in the terms in terms of complexity. He said, he said, look, sooner or later there will be a meltdown of the net. We were headed for that long before Heartbleed. I never said what I believe because I didn't want to be the first to say it. But we have built, been building more complex systems and more life-sustaining dependencies on a fragile and insecure system. The uh-huh. ability to do harm increases with every new dependency. When the network equivalent of Katrina happens, it will be felt everywhere. Yep. And, and so I look at that, and then I think about the students that are in my grad class that I'm teaching, and I'm going, what am I doing to prepare them for this type of complexity, this type of the world where you know, the entire society yep. is going, Absolutely. hey, let, let's build on the complexity. Let's make it more complex and more intertwined, and as we do so, less robust. And I go, that's a difficult problem. How do you how do you give people the courage uh, to go against the grain and to the vision to see what needs to be done to fix some of these problems? I think uh, I think you got two key words there. First is uh, robustness, and uh, and if you look at most of the way we are taught as engineers, we're basically taught to ignore robustness because the objective function is to maximize some efficiency quotient mm-hmm. that that's pretty typical I, I think in most engineering w- when you look at the bottom line right when you design something it's about performance that's measured that's quantifiable that that's somehow quantifiable and robustness is one of th- those things that's very very hard to quantify and and so so i think there is a an issue with the overall design objective here right if if you are going to dis- and and the trade off between performance and robustness is almost always a trade off right right and and and, and especially uh, actually i should say that in complex system there tend to be a trade off between robustness and performance and, uh, and and this happens in our economic system this happens in our any kind of uh, highly organized uh, technological network where if you essentially you can it's hard to design a fail safe in in highly complex system because when they don't fail as much but when they fail they really really fail mm-hmm. so so i i, th- I think uh, that's something that Human beings have a tough time appreciating, and that, that's where I think that, that's an important piece that's missing. I, I don't think I mentioned systems thinking. I think system thinking and understanding complexity is one thing that is almost completely missing in engineering education, because most students just don't have a reason. If they're, if they're dealing with very isolated problem like a steam engine, there's no reason for understanding these kinds kind of complexity because it's isolated, right? Mm-hmm. And complexity only occurs when you connect things together. It can never happen in an isolated system. Right. Right. And, and that that's that's where that's where I think it's it's hugely missing. And uh, and to deal with your original question is how do I prepare the students to deal with possible failure? Well, what happens with possible failure is that that's where real ingenuity is needed. And, and you know, I don't really mind a crash. I, 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 I'm really not a doomsday sayer in any way. I'm very optimistic. As just my general outlook is fairly optimistic. But the crash is a part of my optimistic outlook. 
because I think、uh, a lot of things are overdue for a for a serious change, and and people don't like to change that much, and they're. The crash might force people to relook at things, but that's where we. When that happens, that's when we really need、uh, the new engineers. When we really need people who are much more capable of engineer real ingenuity. Right. And the second second part that you talked about, I, I think、uh, I, I like the word courage. Uh, it's just something about that word really touches, re- really resonate with me. And,、uh, and and for me,、uh, that word has more. It's not bravery. People think courage. People think bravery, but courage is more about listening to your heart. That's the word. Cur comes. Courage. Cur is means heart. That's the root. The the stem of the word.、Mm-hmm. And、uh, and to be courageous to listen to your heart and to follow your heart. And I, I think that's something that engineering students. And most people in general in today's society are missing because we're kind of taught not to. If if we were trained to be interchangeable cogs in the machine, then your heart is not very important. Well, it turns out the heart is the most important part if we are to be happy, if we are to live a meaningful life, if we're to have a satisfactory work life,、mm-hmm. right? And、uh, And life satisfaction, I think,、uh, to me, that that's where that's where the society has to move. And we're talking a little bit outside engineering now, but I think if you look at society as a optimization problem of a sort, as you like, just any kind of complex system in our society, or if you look at society in general, there's well, like we need to look at the objective function a little bit, right? Right now, the objective function is mostly economic, and mostly economic in the sense of a quantifiable identifier, whether it's、uh, GDP or something similar. Right? If you look at a company, it's generally the profitability, or you know, how, how much stock have,、uh, the stock price, or wh- whatever the bottom line. Right? These complex systems are using very simplistic indicators for their success. But in a a complex system, the su- success is defined much more. Well, the the definition of success in a complex system is well, it's complex, you know. And especially when human beings are in there, you got to take into account the feeling and experiences of the human being, and you got to take into account the robustness of the system. You got to take into account of the real. Well, that's where engineer comes in. Is it, you got to take into account of the physical constraints, right? So, so if you look at any complex system, you can kind of formulate it into a optimization problem in which the problem is constrained by the 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 physical law of the universe, the amount of resources we have, you know, the amount of people we have, etc., etc. The the network, the the technological exchange network that's there. And then you got the objective function of、uh, well, how do we want to design this system? Do we want a system that you know make a lot of products and、uh, and make a lot of money for the company, for example, if the system is a company, or you want a company that really reflects the human value of its stockholder, or you want a company that actually makes its employees happy? You know, you want a company that's robust to change in the market. 
right? And I, I think these are the, the kind of uh, deep questions that needs to be asked. And I think only engineers and only this kind of new type of engineers who are a pr- who, who's courageous enough to kind of look, step outside the box, mm-hmm. right? And uh, to, pe- to be creative, ingenious, but also have that understanding and appreciation of the physical limitation of the world, the physical constraints. This is the type of people we need to think about this kind of problem. Without a doubt. Yeah, okay. So I guess, I guess that made sense. I have no idea if that made sense when I said it. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of went on a rent. <laughs> right. Well, I, I, at, at the very least, I do think you have a multi-generational issue if you're going to change, change the way we account for, you know, if we basically are changing the financial accounting system into something that accounts for human happiness. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's, that doesn't start from economics. That, that starts from how we t- teach our students. Because that that's a that's a motivational issue. That's what we that that that's the you know that's the change comes from within problem. Hmm. You know, two generation, three generations, not well. Hopefully, we don't, doesn't crash that badly. But <laughs> I, I I think two three generations okay. I I have I have hope. <laughs> I have very high hopes. <laughs> now I don't know. Uh, I don't know if that that little bit of thing about crash is going to scare people off of your podcast so you know (laughs) i think they can they can handle it (laughs) It, it's just a projection i I mean i i don't know like i just doesn't scare me as much as it scares a lot of people It, it, it i think uh fear is this very funny thing of um a lot of our fear are you know fear is a signal Right. And this comes from being a martial artist. I really understand. Well, if, not all martial artists do, because a lot of martial art kind of try to bowl over that, kind of try to ignore the fear, try to teach you how to kind of ignore it and, and kind of power through with, with rage. Right. Mm-hmm. And, but the, the type of martial art I study doesn't do that. It actually asks you to, uh, to examine your fear. And it's also almost have a very, it's like self, self-help a little bit in a way, right? When you, when you try to understand your own fear and you realize most of your fears are not real. Because real fears are, are signals that's telling you, get out, move, save your life. And you listen. Cause, cause, but, but a lot of it is, is past pain extrapolated incorrectly into the future. Mm-hmm. And and this happens all over, and uh, this is built into all of our systems because it people are like that. Because, well, if you don't examine your heart, if you don't examine your heart, then you're prone to have these kind of unrealistic fears rule your life. And and I think a, a lot of resistance to change in education is that it's fear, right? And uh, you know. You can extrapolate to all sorts of other things. I'm a big fan of uh, Brene Brown. Uh, she has a TED Talk and has a couple of very excellent books on wholeheartedness. Okay. And this is one of her central idea is that, well, we live in a society that's ruled by fear. And it locks us. It kind of locks us into the status quo. And that, that's where courage comes in. 
that that's where change can happen is that if you recognize these fears as well not real they're they're, they're just extrapolated from your past pain into the future right well we've uh, rolled uh, quite a bit past the hour mark here we should probably think about wrapping this up and and letting you go uh, is there any way you would like our listeners to contact you if they have any any questions or uh, uh yeah okay um you can put my email on the uh, on the notes. This is uh, kai dot hua dot zhuang at gmail dot com, and uh, I'll just say it in the American way because uh, <laughs> again, because people don't understand Z when I say Z in U.S. Right. and people don't understand Z when I say in Europe. So right. uh, the American way is kai dot hua dot Z-H-U-A-N-G at gmail.com. And uh, that's probably the one to reach me because uh, I'm looking for a job right now. So if anyone's listening and is interested in someone <laughs> who's interested in education and transforming education, engineering, and technology, feel free to contact me. Otherwise, uh, my email might be in flux. So right. I'm giving my Gmail, which would be personal and, and permanent. Uh, I guess you guys will probably post the link to my YouTube video as well. Uh, we'll, put uh, that in, we'll put that in the show notes, yeah. if that's yeah, okay. If you put that, yeah, I put that in the show notes so, uh, so people can take a look. It's a little bit more succinct and more coherent than, than this kind of podcast where I just kind of go on rants. <laughs> <laughs> um, that, that, that's all right. We, we enjoy a good rant from time to time. <laughs> I seem to go on a lot of these. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. That, that, that's good. <laughs> Terrific. Well, tell you what, Kai, we uh, will let you go, but uh, certainly appreciate your willingness to uh, spend some time with us and share your insights and thoughts. Great. Well, thank you for inviting me to join in. Uh, I enjoyed it. Have, have, a, uh, have a good evening. Yes, you too, guys. Bye-bye. Good night. The Engineering Commons is produced in affiliation with Big Beacon, a social movement for transforming engineering education, located on the web at bigbeacon.org. For more information about the podcast you've just heard, please visit theengineeringcommons.com. Our theme music is by Paul Stevenson. 